So I was scheduled to preach a few weeks ago, the Sunday that we canceled the service because the power was out here. And my plan was just to do that sermon uh, this morning. Um, but I looked at the lectionary passages, this is kind of what we follow, and I was really curious by this passage from 2 Corinthians. Now, right off the bat, I have to tell you, it's a challenging passage. You know, um, we're reading Paul's words spoken to a church 2,000 years ago, a very different time and culture and context, but not only do we have that, Paul is referencing an even different time and culture and context. He's talking about a story that happened like 1,600 years before that with Moses. So before we can understand what in the world Paul's talking about, we need to understand the story that he's telling about Moses. So the story I'm going to tell you is from Exodus 32 and 34. You can turn there. You don't have to. I'm just going to kind of give you the Cliff Notes version. So Moses has been on the mountain with God for about 40 days receiving the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain are growing concerned that maybe he's not coming back. So they decide, this sounds real foreign to us, but they decide that they need some new gods to lead them the rest of the way. So they go to Aaron and ask him to make them some gods. Now, Aaron is Moses' older brother. He's kind of like the number two guy here. And you would think he'd take that moment to remind them of all that God has done in setting them free from slavery in Egypt and rescuing them from Pharaoh and leading them up to this point. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, okay, bring me your jewelry. So they make a golden calf out of the jewelry and then begin to, in the words of Exodus, I'm just quoting, indulge in revelry and, get this, run wild. That's what the Israelites do. So word soon makes its way up the mountain to where God and Moses are. And God decides that he's had enough. He's had enough of these people. He's gonna kill them all. This happens from time to time. But Moses pleads with God to give them another chance. God says, okay. Moses comes down the mountain, he, he, he smashes the two tablets with the Ten Commandments, and he still ends up killing some people. So a short time later, Moses goes back up the mountain with God to do the whole Ten Commandments thing over again. And while up there, God tells Moses that he is going to do what he promised Abraham all those years ago, and he's going to deliver these people to the land that he promised, and he's gonna make them into a great nation but he's not going to go with them. Now, Moses is glad he's not gonna kill them all. That's, always, that's, a good, that's a good thing. And he's glad that he's gonna do these things he promised. But to not go with them, that's as bad as killing them to Moses. And so he pleads with God, if your presence isn't gonna go with us, don't send us out from here. So God agrees that he will go with them. Now, Moses at this point is feeling pretty confident in his negotiating skills, and so he decides to ask God for one more thing. His request, show me your glory. Now, let me pause here. The other reason this Corinthians passage is challenging is because of this word. Between this passage I read in, in 2 Corinthians and the passage before, which introduces Moses, the story of Moses, the word glory or glorious is used 12 times in this short amount of time. We know this word, we, we sing about it most Sunday mornings, we sing about it this morning. Um, 
maybe you've heard of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. That was a little bit before this time with Moses where God was a pillar of fire at night and so the people would follow him. Uh, years ago when my 16-year-old Adam was three or four, he, had, he learned about the Shekinah glory in church. And so soon uh, that week we're driving down Covington Pike and you know, all the car dealers and there's one of those lights that's like shining up into the sky. Uh, it's like the Batman light, you know, but instead of Batman, it's like Chevy or something. And uh, Adam gets super excited and is shouting about the Shekinah glory. I'm sure little Micah is a little freaked out, but awesome. also like, this guy is awesome, Bigger, big brother. And uh, so we're tr- good parents, we go with it. Yeah, Shekinah glory, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, Adam, could you recreate that moment for us this morning? No? Okay. All right. That'd be awesome. Uh, So we occasionally hear this word, glory, at church. We sing about it. We really never hear it outside of the context of church, and we we may not really know what it means. Does anybody know know what the word glory means? (laughs) I know, know, right? So, So the Hebrew word is kavod, and it it means um, weightiness or importance. So when I think about glory, it's whatever holds the most weight in my life. It's most weighty. At times that's been God, at times, if I'm honest, it's been other things, the things that are most important. So when Moses asks God to show him his glory, he wants to see the bigness of God. He just wants to see how amazing God is. So how does God respond to this request? Well, God reminds him, God reminds Moses that if any man, if any human looks upon the face of God, it will literally kill them. It's that big. So we can't do that. We don't wanna kill Moses. But we'll do something. He says, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna hide you, this is God talking to Moses, I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm gonna pass by and I'm gonna put my hand over your eyes so you don't die. And then when I get past you, I'll move my hand and you'll see my back. That's the best we could do there, okay? And so that happens. I know it's an odd thing, um, but Moses in this moment experiences the presence of God in a way that he never has before. And then with the new tablets, he goes down the mountain. And fortunately, the Israelites have behaved themselves this time. But when they see Moses, They freak out. Why? Because his face is glowing. It's radiant. Because he's been, he's experienced the presence of God in a way he never has before. And so he's, picture this, he's down there trying to tell them about these 10 commandments, kind of important deal. And they just can't even go there. They're so freaked out. So what does he do? He gets a veil and he puts it over his face because that's the only way he can keep their attention. And from that point on, anytime he's talking with the Israelites, it says that he wore a veil. And then when he's with God, he takes it off. It's a good story, right? Why in the world's Paul telling this story? What, what's he trying to get to? So this is the big idea for this morning. He, Paul wants to remind them of the amazing privilege they have of experiencing the presence of God in a way that would have absolutely shocked the Israelites. He wants them to know that everything changed because of Jesus. Everything was different. 
Think back to the three years that Jesus is with his disciples. When they experienced Jesus, they were experiencing God. He even says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If we want to know what God's heart is like, we look to Jesus. But when Jesus was preparing to leave them, he made this audacious statement that it's actually gonna be better for you when I leave. Now you know they're, they're not getting that because they really like being with Jesus, right? But Jesus during this time is fully human and in his humanity, he can only be in one place at one time. But when he left, when he died, he was going to send the spirit who could indwell all of God's children. Because here's the thing, when Jesus was with you, it was awesome. But then he would leave and you were sad. Or when he's with you, he's not with everybody else in the world. But the amazing thing was that the spirit would come and indwell all of God's children to usher them, to teach them about God, usher them into his presence. Something also happened though, when Jesus died, at the moment he died. At the time of Jesus' death, there was a temple. So we had had Solomon's temple, which was then destroyed by the Babylonians, and then Herod built a second temple. And uh, let me tell you a little about the temple, who could go where. So there was the outermost area of the temple. It was called the, the Court of the Gentiles. Anybody could enter this area. Beyond that was the Court of the Women, where only Jewish men and women were allowed, no Gentiles. Then there was the court of the Israelites where only Jewish men could enter, no women. This was followed by the court of the priests where only priests were allowed. Then you had the holy place where only selected priests were allowed. And finally, you had the most holy place or the holy of holies where only one priest, the high priest, could enter and he could only enter one time per year. You got all that ready for the test later? Just kidding. It was a big deal. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff you had to remember. And in this holy place, this was kind of where they saw God dwelling amongst his people. And there was this tall and thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospels share that at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And what's the significance of this? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see this, have confidence to enter the most holy place. A phrase like this would have been unheard of prior to Jesus. Prior to this, prior to Jesus, only the high priest and only one time could enter. Anyone else would be killed for going in this. I mean, it, they would be killed. So what changed? God's holiness hasn't changed. God's glory hasn't changed. But because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have access to God. We are cleansed and we are invited to enter into the most holy place with God. Paul wants his readers then and now to understand what an amazing 
amazing privilege it is. Going back to the passage, Paul says that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Here's the way I've been thinking about this this week. Um, you remember the, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have Adam and Eve, and there's, I think what he's saying is that we get to experience God the way that Adam and Eve did. I love the image of the three of them walking in the cool of the night. There was love, there was community, there was conversation, there was intimacy. And we all know what happened when sin entered. It broke everything. But now Jesus has come and changed everything. So I've been sitting with this passage for about a week. And uh, I said I was curious about it. And I've continued to be curious about it. And as it's been coming alive in me, I've had a couple of different feelings. And the first has been guilt. I've realized that I've taken this privilege for granted. There have, there have been many times in my life where I've said to God, thanks, but no thanks, I'm doing quite well on my own. Here's what Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says. <clears throat> because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. That's part of my problem. So many times I believe the lie that I don't need God. But I realize that it's not actually my main problem. My main problem is that many days I don't really believe that God is really wanting to spend time with me. It seems like God has a lot on his plate. After all, there are wars going on. And if you resonate with that feeling, um, Listen to what Richard Rohrer writes in his excellent book, Everything Belongs. Prayer is being loved at a deep, sweet level. I hope you have felt such intimacy alone with God. I promise you it is available to you. Maybe a lot of us just need to be told that it is what we should expect and seek. We're afraid to ask for it. We're afraid to seek. It feels presumptuous. We can't trust that such a love exists, but it does. This, uh, this book from Richard Rohr came to me at a really critical point in my life. It was just a few years ago, I was a pastor um, at the time of a church I had started about a decade earlier, and I had for a while been feeling that um, perhaps it was time for me to transition out of vocational ministry. It was, it was such a difficult decision. And I was in a time of discernment, and one of the things I decided to do was participate in an Ignatian silent retreat at a Catholic retreat center about an hour from here. I'd never been on a silent retreat before. I wasn't really sure what to do at a silent retreat. Um, in the first hour of silence, I just walked around the beautiful grounds. I figured that was an appropriate thing to do. There was a lake with a fountain in the middle of it, and I sat down. It was good to just be still and to just feel the breeze, to kind of quiet my mind. And off to the left, I saw something kind of at the edge of the woods. I couldn't tell what it was, um, but I walked towards it. And um, it, was, it was Jesus sitting down. It was a statue of Jesus sitting down with a little girl in his lap and a boy kneeling beside him. Both kids were gazing up. I think we got a picture of it. Yeah, it's kind of a creepy statue. They don't make statues like that anymore, do they? 
kind of creepy, but also a little mystical. It was at a place called Our Lady Queen of Peace, so it kind of goes with it. But they hadn't really um, cut back the, the, the grass and stuff in a while, and so it's just kind of sitting over there. And I just felt myself drawn to this image. And, uh, as, and so I just sat down in the grass. It was a little damp, but I just sat down in the grass and just, I felt myself drawn to this little boy who's looking up. I'd, I'd never done that before. You may be familiar with this story that this references, this picture, this image. Um, it's Jesus with the children coming up to him. I normally re- resonate with the disciples because they're shooing the parents away because surely Jesus has more important stuff to do than hang out with the kids, right? It says Jesus rebuked those suckers and said, no, actually, uh, these kids get me and my kingdom better than you guys do. And so I've always understood that. Boy, they're, they're just busy. You know, the disciples got stuff to do and he's telling them. But in this moment, I'm thinking about that boy. And I felt like in that moment that Jesus was inviting me to be a child and just spend time with him, to come to him, be honest with what I needed. And then I had the moment. As I sat there, I realized there's a lot of fear with this story. I imagined myself not as this kid up front, but as the kid about 10 kids back in line waiting. A lot of kids that day opted to play, but me and some others really wanted to see this guy, Jesus. So I mustered up the courage to get in line, but then it hit me, what if I'm next in line and then Jesus gets up to leave. And I'm just standing there. And in that moment, I felt rejection. And then I had to ask the question, where does that feeling come from? And without going into too much detail, I've remembered a couple of instances in my life, right out of college, hungry for God, real formative years, and reaching out to a couple of guys older than me just to meet and learn from and, and was, was denied that. And those things hurt and I recognized that they impacted me. And then the big question comes out of that, is Jesus that way as well? And there it is, right? Pain from humans that then impacts the way we think about God. So this is where God wanted me at that moment. So an hour or so later, I was in the library of this Catholic retreat center and being a Catholic retreat center in a Catholic library, I was not real familiar with a lot of the authors, but I saw a book by Richard Rohr and I'd read parts of his Enneagram book. And um, so I grabbed it and I started reading it and I just started reading it. It was one of those right place, right time books. Listen to another thing that he says in this book. You cannot not live in the presence of God. You're totally surrounded by God as you read this. St. Patrick said, God beneath you, God in front of you, God behind you, God above you, God within you. You cannot earn this God. You cannot prove yourself worthy of this God. Feeling God's presence is simply a matter of awareness, of enjoying the now, deepening one's presence. There are moments when it happens, then life makes sense. Once I can see the mystery here and trust the mystery even in this piece of clay that I am, in this moment of time that I am, then I can also see it in you. I'm able to see the divine image in myself, in you and eventually in all things. Finally, the seeing is one. How you see anything is how you will see everything. 
The good thing about that, those two days of that silent retreat is just, I didn't leave that moment too quickly because I didn't have anything else to do. I just stayed with it. And God spoke to me, God was with me. I experienced his presence. So this week, I found myself thinking about those days and some other times when I've met with God. And I've felt some guilt because it's really been a while and I've kind of not even missed it. The image that came to mind this week was, was that I've taken that veil that was cast aside and I've put it back over my face, forgotten about this amazing privilege I have and pursued other things. Good things, mind you, but other things. And there's some guilt with that. There's also some hope that I've had. So I'm an Enneagram 7, a true glass half full optimist, which simply means that all I need sometimes is a little sliver of hope and I get pretty excited. And so what I felt in the midst of this is that I wanted to spend time with God. It didn't matter that I haven't maybe like I wanted to, but I wanted to now and I felt like I could. I felt like maybe I could carve out some experiments to be with God, to experience God's presence. So I set out to do that. I, I thought about uh, two words that just have kind of been with me all week are surrender and invitation. So surrender is all about recognizing your dependence and then letting go of control. Two hard things. Surrender is all about Recognizing dependence and letting go of control. And then invitation's all about asking and expecting. So we surrender and we invite. That's kind of been my thing this week. I just wanna surrender and I wanna invite. So with that as kind of my, my foundation this week, um, here's kind of some of the things my experiment has looked like. It started with the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I've been going back to the Psalms to both encourage me and to give me words to capture what's in my heart. So I've got some Psalms on the, on the screen. Just wanna read these. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One of the ways I've sought after God this week is just through his scripture. Um, my buddy Luke's here this morning and, and he and I meet every week and we've been trying to read the Bible in a year. And as great as that is, boy, sometimes just keeping up with it's tough and I just, I'm blowing through <laughs> blowing through these chapters and sometimes I just need to push that aside and just read one verse and just meditate on that one verse for a little while and just let God speak. That's a, some, of the, some of the words in scripture are just beautiful and they will soften my heart. Um, 
Uh, several mornings uh, this week, I've woken up early and I have this app on my phone called Centering Prayer. And uh, it's, really, it's really good. I've just been up before anyone else and it's still dark and um, have this app and it starts, it, it encourages you to have a word like presence or Jesus or love, something that you can hold on to when your mind wanders. And then there's this pleasant gong. No, there's a, you read a Psalm, meditate on that. And then there's this gong and then five or 10 minutes, whatever you choose just to be silent. And when your mind wanders and it will, you just kind of come back to that word to just try to still your mind and your heart, your thoughts. And then after those five minutes or whatever it is, another gong and then another um, Psalm. And boy, it's just been really good. It's just been really good to quiet my heart for a little while. You know, it's been raining all week. Otherwise, I would have spent a bunch of time outside. I'm really excited looking at the forecast this week because I always find being outside and just experiencing the beauty of God is a great way to be close to God. So I'm looking forward to spending some time there. Um, I've also been listening to a lot of worship music this week. There's something about worship that lifts my soul and changes my heart. Um, but I also know that worship can be really uncomfortable. Uh, think, think about the words we just sang a little bit ago. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, there's that word. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. I don't know about you, but normally I don't want to be overcome by anything but being overcome by the presence of God is actually a good thing, but it's uncomfortable. And then let us become more aware of your presence. What a great little prayer. Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. I love these poets who can give me words that though uncomfortable, echo the deepest longings of my heart. And what, what are the deepest longings of my heart? I think Augustine said it best. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless all the time. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, maybe you're like me, you're, you're experiencing some feelings of guilt, maybe also of hope. Um, we enter the season of Lent in a few days, and Lent is always thought about as giving things up, which I think that's very true. But it's also a time, I think, of taking some things on, taking some new things. I love that we have a prayer room. If maybe this is a perfect time to try some new things. Maybe some of the things I've mentioned, maybe something I haven't mentioned. But just, it's a perfect time to experiment. Here's the amazing thing. Nothing you do with any of this I've said is gonna make God love you more or make God bless you more. You're his child. And for those of you who have kids, you know that's, that's the way it works. Your kids can't do anything, good or bad, to make you not love them. And it's the same way with God, even more and more and more so. So we just get to be invited in freedom to try some stuff. So I encourage you to do that. I wanna end with where Paul ends this passage. 
it's kind of, I would say it's where this series that we've been on, on family, it's kind of where this comes in for me because we are family first and foremost because we have the same father and the same brother and the same spirit who leads us to the father and makes us more like Jesus. So here's how Paul ends this passage. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. I know still kind of hard to understand what he's talking about. Here's, here's the image I think Paul's given us. We are, if you follow Jesus, if you have turned to Jesus, as he says in this passage, we are all walking around like Moses with unveiled faces, with our faces then radiating God's glory. And when we do that, we are reflecting God's glory back to him, but we're also reflecting God's glory to one another. And that's where the magic happens. He's saying that God then uses that to transform us. God's probably primary agenda is to make us more like Jesus because that's where we experience freedom and hope and health and abundance and all of this stuff as we become more and more like Jesus. And God uses this. So here's the, here's, here's the amazing thing. When you are experiencing God, it impacts me in an, in an amazingly positive way. That's why we have community. That's why I meet with my friend Luke every week because when I see him encountering Jesus or when I see Mandy encountering Jesus, it makes me closer to God. I'm impacted in a powerful way. That's the beauty of this thing that we have. And it's such an amazing thing that Jesus did this for us, that he changed everything so that we can be with the Father. Let's pray.